Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And joining us via Zoom, he is the co-host of the Monster Party podcast and a Dollar Baby filmmaker alum who adapted to the real version of The Lawnmower Man. Please welcome Jim Gonis to the show. Jim, how's it going? Hey, great. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. How are you doing? We're doing fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> we are we just watched the the your adaptation of Lawnmower Man, so we couldn't be more excited to be having oh. this conversation with you. <laughs> well, um, you know, considering it's a student film from how many years ago now? Uh, like over 35 years ago, I think. It's I'm, I'm tickled to still be in a position where uh, people are interested in talking about it. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm kind of, and I have so many questions regarding all that. But before we do it, I, I'm going to turn things over to CM because she... Uh, I don't want to scare you, but she guards the interview with all that she has. So I just, just play nice, CM. I okay, I'll be nice, Jim. If you don't pass the test, I I'm just gonna come mow your lawn. That's all that's gonna happen. <laughs> oh no! No! Okay. First question: What was your introduction to Stephen King's work? Uh, the trailer for The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I was 14 or 15, and I was already very into film at that time. And I was so impressed with that trailer that I thought, you know what, maybe I should start reading King. So mm-hmm. I picked up not The Shining, but The Stand, which had just come out in paperback. So that was a deep dive into, into yeah. King. And I, <laughs> and I absolutely loved it, and that made me a fan for life. That's amazing. So a trailer... Got you interested in King, and the first thing you did was pick up a different book. <laughs> that's, I, yeah, I love that's great. that. And what a, the stand? I mean, what a great book to pick up as your first Stephen King book, too. Yeah, and it was the first book I ever had to. I ever took it upon myself to read that was over four hundred pages that mm-hmm. wasn't a school assignment. Yeah, yeah so that was like wow. I feel like such an adult now. <laughs> That book is one of those that you like you finish reading it and you feel like it's the only book you've ever read in your entire life because it's like a thousand pages. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So my other question, and then I have more questions for you about The Stand. Do you Mm -hmm. have a Stephen King moment from any of his work, something that has stuck out to you? Uh, yeah, I, I was actually, uh, it, it's from the stand and I was uh, reading it on a, on a, like a Greyhound bus. And it was the scene late in the novel where um, uh, Stu Redman is by himself and his, you know, his leg is injured and you're, you know, it's set up so that you're afraid for him. And then he's discovered by Tom Cullen. And I, I, my heart leapt. I was just mm-hmm. thrilled at that scene because I was just so relieved for Stu. <laughs> and I thought, wow, if prose fiction can actually have the power to move me this way, then, then it's wonderful. You know, later on, there were other moments where what King was doing in his storytelling tickled me, like in, in Christine, where it's the first, even though you know what the book is about going in, those, those first passages where there's, the, the hint that Christine is actually alive mm-hmm. and that King is selling something that he, you're, you're sort of going along with him on this journey that he's selling something that's so completely unbelievable. Uh, I've also a, a moment in Pet Cemetery where church, the cat for first time church comes back and it's like, you, you can sort of see, see the wheels turning, but it's just so much fun. And yes, yes, I will go along <laughs> with this. I love it. That So you've definitely passed the test because 
something I'm notorious for is I refuse when I'm asked for one question, like you have to pick a thing. I'm like, well, I have three or four. So <laughs> I, I sure. love that. I think those are the best answers. You're like, I can't possibly narrow that down. So strap yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> and those are all amazing moments. I. So what did you think of the stand adaptations? Have you seen both? Yeah, I really liked uh, the Mick Garris adaptation. Mm-hmm. I had just actually moved to LA and I got to see uh, courtesy of uh, my good friend, fellow Dollar Baby filmmaker, uh, James Cole, who was um, the first, the only friend that I had living out here in L.A. when I moved here from New York. And he had friends that were doing a screening in advance of that miniseries. So we we binge watched the whole thing in a room full mm-hmm. of people, uh, which was wonderful you know, to be able to share it and be excited, so excited by it, it you know, with this group. And I Liked it a lot. I, I really liked the casting. I understood how some of the you know ch- changes needed to be made for time, mm-hmm. uh, and some characters combined, and so on. Having seen the more recent adaptation, which I like, there's a lot that I like about it. But I thought that the, the more recent one was going to blow the McGarris one out of the water, but it didn't quite do that. Instead, it made me want to revisit the McGarris one, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought about it a little bit more fondly in in retrospect, because, you know, the, the, the new version did a lot that was right, but it also did a few things that just, I, that I didn't agree with at all. Um, and I, I'm sure that, you know, every fan who feels so close and mm-hmm. such a personal connection to the source material is going to have these opinions. Yeah. Well, and there's that, that missing episode, I think really hurt it in a lot of ways for fans. We didn't get the, the Tom Cullen coming home with Stu like that whole oh, yeah. thing. And, and I know that was, I think they filmed that, right? And I, I hope so. That I, that's what I heard that they filmed it. But for some reason that just wasn't part of the story. And that's kind of, like you said, like that was one of your moments. That's something you're looking forward to and waiting for. So that definitely, even though I still enjoyed it, I, I love, I love both of them, but made a difference for sure. Yeah. I want to jump back to the fact that you got to binge watch the entire stand before like anybody had seen it. That is insane. Yeah. Like it was wonderful. Like, what, what it was, was wonderful. Well, first of all, what was that like? Like sitting in a room with a bunch of people watching that, and then getting to see America watch that, but they had to watch it well, nights yeah, are you apart. Like the OG binge watcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess. I mean, it was a, it was a big event, and um, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you who else was in the room. I, you know, all a whole bunch of people I'd never met before, except except Jim, and where you know, everyone was very very excited by it, and there was no talking back to the screen. There was there was a lot of reverence and really following the uh, miniseries along real closely. I I do remember one random moment. And it was, a, it was just a shot of Miguel Ferrer wearing like a black tidy whities <laughs> black underwear, and it made it made, it, it made one of the women in the room laugh out loud. <laughs> it's just like, okay, that's amazing. It's, it's it's funny the things you remember. Well, that's not the the reaction you want to your to your undies. <laughs> <laughs> well to be no, fair but no that, i know that I know. character <laughs> right <laughs> makes yeah. perfect sense to be like oh lloyd. we're doing sexy now or sexy lloyd yeah <laughs> right, exactly exactly so having such a unique experience with the stand is does that stand out as your favorite adaptation or does something else take that place for you well 
there have been there have been so many great ones and i just i, I wish i wish that i could pull one out of my hat that was uh completely original but the ones that everybody loves are the ones i love it's uh you know frank darabont's mm-hmm. uh work mm-hmm. green mile shawshank uh de palma's carrie is a, an amazing film yeah it's just a, a beautiful film and stand by me of course mm-hmm. do you have a least favorite king adaptation well there's sort of a a curve, right? Because I mean, you could you could look at uh, the Mangler and be like, oh yeah, that's, you know. But but for the ones that you have higher hopes for, Apt Pupil was I thought terrific until the ending. Yes. <laughs> the the decision to have changed it the way that it was changed, so I just thought unforgivable. It could have been so much more powerful if they'd stuck to the story. Because up until then, they it was pretty close, pretty yeah. faithful. And then uh, same for me with the mist, and I know it's extremely divided. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm not a fan of um, Mr. Darabont's decision in in that ending. Although my uh, the co-hosts on my podcasts uh, actually we've come to blows about this because they really <laughs> love that decision. <laughs> and then I guess the Running Man, the Schwarzenegger, oh my was just you know, yeah. not not what it you know, could have been. Yeah. I'm dying for a, a remake that is the book. I think it's okay I would love it. if we just say that The Running Man is like the other Lawnmower Man quotes movie. It is not. Right. It has nothing to do with the book. It is yeah. not an adaptation. Right. I enjoy Arnold Schwarzenegger's Running Man just as a wacky movie on its own. I cannot think of it as a King adaptation or I get angry yep. <laughs> but by itself. I'm right. Like, cool. This is really wacky. It's at eighties, you know, exactly what you expect it to be. Yeah. And having Richard Dawson in it was a stroke of genius. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. God, he was amazing. <laughs> Apparently uh, Edgar Wright is now making another uh, adaptation of it. So, Ooh, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah. And there was talk that Christopher Reeve would have played, you know, the character uh, back in the day. It would have been a very different movie. Yes, yeah. totally different. Yeah. Like, like a pupil was originally filmed with Nicole Williamson and Ricky Schroeder and they ran out of money. Right. So I would love to see some of that footage. Yeah. Yeah. Apt pupil is such a visceral story. And yes, the movie is, it has that right bit of disturbing, the only the big thing besides obviously how terrible that ending is. The one thing that I really wish they could have done. I know people weren't. It's very expensive because hiring several actors is expensive. But the thing that I loved in the story is that this relationship starts like when Todd's twelve. And goes all the way to when he, after he graduates high school, I wish we could have gotten more of a scope of how that relationship unfolds and really Mm -hmm. twists both of them in awful ways. That was the big thing I missed in that. Yeah. And and also that like, like in Kubrick's The Shining, you know, Jack Torrance starts off and he's already sort of unhinged. (laughs) That pupil pupil starts off and Brad Renfro's already a little bit more intense than Todd was supposed to be. He's supposed to be this sort of carefree, you know, kid riding his bicycle in the sun. And that wasn't the Brad Renfro portrayal. But despite that, you know, um, it was still, you know, there there was still so much in it that was faithful that Mm. I was grateful for. Yeah. This is going to be a weird comparison. It makes sense, but it's just weird. These words coming out of my mouth. The shining is the same for me as the running man. Great movie just as a movie, but obviously some of those changes to it. So unfaithful. 
Right. Well, it just also goes to show you, I mean, the McGarris TV adaptation is a lot more faithful and mm-hmm. not as, as compelling. Uh, Firestarter was tremendously faithful to the novel and it just kind of lays there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about where, what started your love of filmmaking? Well, I grew up watching, you know, like a lot of kids watching uh, horror movies on TV. I loved all the old Universal monsters, the Hammer films. And then uh, when I was 10, Jaws came out. And this was the first, I mean, you know, at that age, you're seeing a lot of Disney matinees at the time. This was the first kind of quote unquote grown up movie, which, which was legitimately like, terrifying no matter how old, <laughs> how old you are it's just yeah. kids and adults yeah. <laughs> and it was it was pure cinema it was just, everything sort of came together uh, the editing certainly the music made me a huge soundtrack fan for life and i i don't know if i knew at that moment that i wanted to be a filmmaker but certainly it had a huge impact on me and my psyche mm-hmm. uh and i don't remember ever since then, ever really wanting to do anything else except to, I mean, uh, peripherally other things in the entertainment industry, if not a director, right? So mm-hmm. it, there was always this kind of fascination. But if there had to be one springboard, it was the Jaws experience at 10. <laughs> when you left Jaws, do you remember, were you one of those people who uh, were like, I'm never going into the water, I'm going to have nightmares <laughs> forever? Or were you the kind of person that turned around and tried to buy another ticket to go back and watch it again? Oh, God. I mean, that that was Star Wars before Star Wars figured out. <laughs> you know, I, I probably want to see it six or seven or eight times. That's um, awesome. But, you know, still, yeah, I, I can't... <laughs> You can't go into the water without thinking it. So bull. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) So as somebody who was a film student at NYU in 1985, how does it feel looking at the way filmmaking has changed since you went to school for filmmaking? I, f- I feel like an old man now because I'm like, well, back in my day, the equipment that we were working on, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 16 millimeter cameras. We're talking about, you know, mag sound recording equipment. The technology and the tools, I would think, have changed immensely since then. I, I cannot imagine the type of equipment that they're training on just to stay current in, in today's professional environment. Uh, I have no idea. but. You now all you really let's face it all you really need is is an iPhone and and a good editing system on your computer and you can you can pretty much make your own feature and there are so many outlets now available for content whether it's just free on YouTube or all of these you know streaming sites that I I think it's a more exciting time to be a, a budding filmmaker because you've got so much more at your disposal both in the way that you can do it and the amount of people who can see it did you, were you one of those people who made, uh, did you try to make home movies and things before you ended up going to film school and, and getting that, <laughs> your hands on that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did, you know, when I was, I guess in fourth grade, I did a Frankenstein werewolf thing and you know, awesome. things like that. <laughs> yeah. Messed around it. Yeah. So what was that like getting your hands on real professional equipment in film school for the first time? It was for me pretty daunting. Uh, because 
what, what it always sort of inspired me was to be a storyteller, but the filmmaking process is collaborative uh, by necessity and by nature. And I was always more of a loner. I was more of a singular thinking and, you know, I was kind of the nerd in the corner and suddenly having to uh, work in teams with, with people creatively when that was not what I was used to at all. I mean, you can't count when I was in fourth grade. <laughs> no, this is totally different. The way that NYU film was structured at the time was that as a freshman, you make Super 8 films silent, and then you don't get to make a sync sound 16 millimeter film until you're a junior in a class at the time that was called Junior Narrative. And most students make films from their own original scripts. And our group that got together, there we all sort of pitched our own ideas, but we didn't have a designated uh, director or designated cameraman or sound man. It, we all sort of fell into the roles based on who had a script that we wanted to make or that we felt could be a good short film. And whoever pitched that script that we agreed on, that person would be the director by default. And we couldn't come up with anything uh, that we liked. And I pitched a couple of ideas of my own that I didn't frankly even like because I wasn't used to thinking in terms of short films. I, I was just thought in terms of features. So there was a lot of pressure to be creative, which was hard, you know, at that age, as I remember. And we were driving around the village one day, and I just said out of the blue, uh, why don't we just make Stephen King's Lawnmower Man? And that started us on this path, and we went ahead and did it. And because it was kind of an audacious, crazy, uh, bizarre story, it I think we had a little bit of piss and vinegar at the time as film students that we were like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. It was also uh, creep show had only come out a few years before. And I guess tales from the dark side was probably on the, on the air. So all of that type of storytelling was very much in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. at the time. That's fantastic. So for anybody who has not read the lawnmower man and has only seen that terrible, terrible adaptation uh, that has nothing to do with the lawnmower man, could you summarize the story? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's from a 12-page short story in Night Shift, and it's about a suburban homeowner named Harold Parquet, who is, uh, he's, he's kind of lazy, he's like a middle-aged man, and he just decides to let his lawn go uh, when he can no longer get the kid, who usually mows his lawn, to mow it, because the kid's gone off to college. So sooner or later, he becomes a neighborhood disgrace. The lawn is is too uh, unwieldy. So he has to hire someone out of the phone book. And the the man who shows up from pastoral greenery is named Karis. And he's this huge sort of lumbering, very, very cheerful man. But he's uh, unbeknownst to Parquet. He's a disciple of the god Pan. And so what Karis proceeds to do is to mow the lawn naked uh, (laughs) in the wake of a lawnmower that is running itself. It's huge, imposing lawnmower. And of course, you know, Parquet freaks out about this because suddenly he's in this nightmare and uh, he can't stop what's going on. In fact, uh, what he doesn't realize is he's that he's actually a sacrifice to the god Pan and that what Karis intends to do is to chop him up and put him in the birdbath which is what he does. Uh, so that's basically the story. <laughs> such when, a great story. When you say it all out loud like that, <laughs> I know, it I know. so bonkers. Right. So is the, when you pitched that, 
had any of the people you were with read it or did you have to explain it to them like you just explained it to us they had all read it oh perfect. I mean, this was this was everybody was reading at the time christine was in paperback and everybody was reading it's like actually christine had come out before but um everybody had read most of king up until that point it, it just seemed that Maybe, maybe it's not as much the case now. I don't necessarily know who everybody's reading now, but back then everybody was reading King and everybody knew, seemed to know Night Shift. And they certainly knew that story. So why of all the stories, say even in Night Shift, what made you choose the Lawnmower Man for that pitch? It, it hadn't been done yet. I was actually, I didn't know that the King meant it as kind of a joke. And when I first read it, I was disturbed by it. It had an impact <laughs> on it. And when all of these adaptations started to be announced. I remember reading in Famous Monsters magazine that Milton Subotsky, uh, who had you know, been a producer with Amicus films, had the rights to three short stories. And one of it, it was going to be called Terror by Daylight, this anthology. And one of the stories was going to be Lawnmower Man. I was excited because like, oh, this is cool because I wondered how this would play on film. And it always sort of stuck out in my head. So when the time came, for whatever reason, the adaptation didn't come out. It was never meant to be. It didn't get made. So I wanted to see it. And because I wanted to see it, I thought, well, maybe we can just make it. Because it's <laughs> a good practice, I guess, to make what you want to see. Makes sense. Yeah. I should I should mention also that uh, after the film was finished and uh, I'd gotten an invitation to screen it at horror fest uh which was a film festival taking place at the stanley hotel which was based on the overlook or rather what the overlook was based on and milton sabotsky got wind of it and he sent me a letter reminding me that he actually owned the rights to the story and that i was not allowed to profit from it I thought that was cool. It's like, wow, now I'm in the big league of getting a letter from Sabatsky, and I still have that letter. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Do you have it framed in your office? <laughs> no, no, but I do have it uh, among my most, most prized mementos from the, the whole uh, experience. That's awesome. So as you mentioned, you started filming Lawnmower Man in 1985, and you finished in 1987. What was the cause of the two-year time stretch and what impacts did that have on the process and on the film? Well, we were students making a film for a class for a grade and we were graded based on the rushes of the film. Not every production made in the junior narrative class necessarily saw completion before the semester ended. So we already were graded and we got good grades on it because our professor, uh, who's actually a Russian filmmaker named Leonid Alexeychuk, uh, he he liked what he saw. He kind of liked the story and, and we were graded on it. And we went on to graduate a year later uh, from NYU. For a lot of students, uh, maybe, uh, you you know, you get your grade and you move on. I think that we were so excited during the process of making it by the actors that agreed to be in it and by the footage that we saw that we had something that was too good to just, you know, kind of leave as, a, as an uncut negative in my refrigerator. <laughs> uh, so I, I always meant to finish it and we did need to cut uh, a couple of scenes 
a couple of shots in, there's there's one scene where Parquette is walking around the lawn and seeing how how much it's grown, and the actor's hair was much longer <laughs> in that scene than it was for the rest of the film. And uh, we also had an insert shot of these cloven hoofs because Karis is supposed to have hoofs instead of feet. And you only see it toward the end when it's supposed to be this sort of horrific reveal. So those were done uh, much later as an insert shot. And even though I had graduated in 86 in the interim, I was still utilizing uh, what NYU could provide as far as students who still needed grades on sound mixing and editing. Even though I had graduated, I was still working with other students who were who were contributing. Uh, there was another you know, NYU student who did a musical score. And then finally, we we had a, an answer print, a black and white answer print from the rough cut. Uh, and we screened it for the first time for an audience. And it was my former sophomore uh, professor's class. So uh, we sat there and, and screened it in front of an audience. And the response we got was marvelous. Mm-hmm. And I was so thrilled. It was so always be one of the most exciting moments of my life uh, because the, the process of, of making the film for me, it was, it was, it was really difficult. Like I, I was not, as I said, I, I was, I was not used to collaborating uh, that way uh, creatively and it was guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, four or five teenagers who were, <laughs> you know, having to, you know, get food for actors mm-hmm. and arrange absolutely everything. And I know that I probably could have gotten PAs, you know, I could have put an ad in, in a, you know, a magazine or a newspaper. This was way before Craigslist, but <laughs> we didn't, we just, you know, we just did the core crew thing and, you know, considering everything really happy with the way it turned out. But for me, it was not, it was not easy. I mean, I, I guess I was like 20 years old, but I remember having heart palpitations sometimes, <laughs> you know, the, the days were really, really long. Yeah. It, was a, it was a heat wave that summer. I think my cat almost died because we used the cat in a scene. Oh. The cat was, had heat stroke. Or oh, something. No. <laughs> it was like one thing after another. It's like, you, you know, they say you're never supposed to work with children or animals. And we had both. You know, <laughs> And it was like, we're not getting paid for this. And and it, it's supposed to be not, you know, you're not really supposed to have to spend any money on this. And I ended up probably spending like $5,000 wow. because we had to rent equipment afterward. And there was all this just basic production expenses. And um, yeah, I was, I was completely freaked out the entire time. But then finally the reward came. We could screen it in front of class. And that class was a sophomore class. So they hadn't done junior narrative yet. So we were like the big boys. Seemed, I think it seemed so professional to them. Like, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, this is great. That's amazing. <laughs> The the two actors, the two main actors, did such an amazing job. Where did you find these guys? Well, the the homeowner, uh, Parquet, uh, we got from Backstage Magazine. We put, you know, you put ads in Backstage at the time to get actors to appear in student films without pay, and many many would do it. You know, you get these submissions of headshots, and then you do these little auditions. And he was clearly, you know, the, the best choice. He was a terrific actor. He hadn't done a lot. He had done some bit parts. And he brought on the woman who plays his wife because she was actually his girlfriend at the time. Her name was Helen Hanft. And he, he you know, we didn't audition her. He just brought her over. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, great. Because he, he told us, well, she's been in Woody Allen movies. She was an Arthur. 
And she was famous for playing kind of bag ladies. Uh, She was in Coming to America. She was a little bag lady on the subway. (laughs) That's awesome. And she was also, she worked a lot with John Patrick Shanley off Broadway. So she had a reputation for that too. So so having the two of them was was wonderful. (laughs) And Karis, the lawnmower man himself, that was a challenge because we didn't get a lot of submissions for anybody who, who looked that part. But uh, we had a, a good friend at the time who worked at uh, Jerry Olinger's movie material store in the village, which was a place you could get any movie poster, any still you want. And he had a friend that worked there who was an actor. His name was Andy Clark. And uh, he introduced us to Andy. Andy was interested. And he certainly was, you know, very, very big lumbering bear of a guy. And he was terrific too. So we really, really lucked out with the casting. If it weren't, it really, if it weren't for the casting, I don't, I don't know if the film ever would have been finished. We, we were thrilled. And I, as a director, I was like, I was like a one take wonder because I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't have demand. I didn't have expectations. Everything they were giving me, I was like, wow, that's so professional. Great. Let's move on. You know? And Helen at the time was like, wow, you're, you really know what you want. You're just like Sidney Lumet, you know, uh, I just like, Look, I'm just, I'm just trying to get enough shots today so we don't, you know. But yeah, the, the actors were uh, were wonderful. I was really, really privileged to um, to work with them. And uh, Ed Ed Phillips actually didn't live to see the um, the final film. By the time it was cut, I, I learned he had passed away. That's terrible. They they that whole cast just great. Yeah. It's so great. So when yeah. it, when it comes to making an adaptation. You, Changes usually have to be made. Can you walk us through anything that you get that you guys chose to do that differed from the source material? I uh, did not go back to the actual source myself. Um, the, the writing duties went to another person in my group, uh, Mike DeLuca, who has since like right now he's the president of MGM. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he had, uh, you know, he'd produced, uh, he was a new line for a long time. Mm-hmm. He started interning there when we were at NYU and then, you know, he ended up producing the Austin Powers films and he's just become this uh, Hollywood mogul, but he adapted the story. And I don't think that he went back to the original night shift story. I think he adapted it from a bizarre adventures, Marvel comics magazine, from 1981 that was illustrated by Walt Simonson, uh, which made a lot of sense because here the story that would have been so hard to visualize, you already kind of had storyboards for it. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't even realize that Mike had done it until I looked back at the comic and was like, Oh yeah, it's, this is more of an adaptation of that comic adaptation than the actual story in night, than the, than the page, page by page story in night. <laughs> Chef. That's so cool. <laughs> so as far as that's concerned, I think it's pretty faithful. Nice. Yeah. Now, what did you want the audience to take away from when they watched The Lawnmower Man, besides being blown away from those sophomores? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I, I've been asked what the point was, and <laughs> I, honestly, <laughs> I, I honestly couldn't really tell you. You know, I mean, when I read it originally, I I was sympathetic for a park cat, the homeowner, and I was mm-hmm. horrified by what happened to him. I I think that in King's story, it, it might have had more to do with this sort of the maybe the point had to do with you know kind of suburban laziness and just hiring people to do what you really should do yourself. Uh, it doesn't mean you deserve to die, but <laughs> you know, uh, again, you know, Creep Show had made a big impact at the time, and and shows like it. I mean, you know, you look at like the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill and Creepshow, and it's kind of like, okay, well, what was 
the takeaway from that. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, all right, well, look, you know, you're just putting something uh, different and colorful and sort of jarring on the screen. And maybe it's just like, okay, you know, you sort of wake up. Maybe the first half of the film, it's a 12-minute film, and maybe the first half of it is just sort of building. But then once that halfway point kicks in and it has that momentum that takes you through, through to the end, it's like, whoa, <laughs> okay, this is different. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 that's a good question because I, I'm not really even sure of the takeaway myself. I, I can tell you what I felt watching it. Yeah. And, and this is a compliment, even if it doesn't sound like it. It made my stomach hurt. <laughs> Uh, yes, it was it it was yeah. a visceral reaction to some of those scenes, which for me, I love horror movies. Mm. And so when I have that kind of physical reaction, I'm like, oh, this is so good. I, I hate this moment, but it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> is the is the moment you're thinking about watching him eat? Sorry, following I, the I just had another like physical. <laughs> I, I grimaced and pulled away from you when you said it because I was seeing it again in my head. It sticks with you. Wow. Yes, that is it. Yeah. It's so just the way he does it with such enthusiasm. Yeah, like it's the best yeah. thing yeah. he's ever had. It it's perfect. It it's disturbing enough when it's just the grass. But then when it's the gopher, (laughs) oh, uh, so please, I have to know, I have to know, what was he actually putting in his mouth? Well, first of all, it was supposed to be a mole that got run. Oh, a mole. There was no way we were going to find a mole. So we went to a pet store and got a guinea pig. So it just happens to be, you know, cut away and then cut to the mower pulling away and you see this roadkill on the lawn. It's a, it was a rabbit pelt. And we went and got uh, tripe from the grocery store and probably some sort of other uh, kind of grotesque thing that you get from the deli. Mm -hmm. And we we sort of bunched it all up and put red food coloring on it. (laughs) What was the grass? The grass was, uh, well, we, we had found a location on Long Island in New York. It's actually near Amityville. And it, we called it Poltergeist Village because it's one of those <laughs> communities where all the houses were the same. And we just randomly went up to the owner and asked him if we could do it. And he said, sure. You know, we weren't allowed inside. We had to cheat the interiors, but we were able to use his lawn. And he did have a really nice lawn. And on the uh, a little bit further up, he there was a, an unkempt area so we could show. I mean, the, the hardest thing was like, well, how are we going to show the grass really tall if there is no tall grass? <laughs> so for the scene where, the you know, he's walking around and the grass is supposed to look tall, basically, it was practically a small vacant lot that was adjacent. And it had a lot more than just grass in it. It had these weeds and all this sort of stuff. Uh, but, you know, you cheated and there's a sense of, the, you know, the element of disbelief that the audience carries along with. No, I, I'm pretty sure all of that was a lie. And that man <laughs> ate grass that man and ate grass. a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> oh. He was... Uh, he was not. He was not actually nude, though. That was a, that was a moment where um, he was supposed to be completely naked, and there was some of. I, I wasn't going to argue with him. He didn't want to be completely naked, but some of the other some of other classmates were trying to cajole him into doing it. Uh, he was wearing a jock strap, but uh, for, for that we had to be. You know, you can visualize it, and certainly in the uh, Walt Simonson comic, you know, he's shown you know fully fully nude. There's no frontal, but you know, there's rear, we, we weren't going to dwell on that too much because mm-hmm. we just could and couldn't, and there would be no point. But um, for the record, he's wearing a jock strap. 
Well, I think that works so well The when the guy faints and he's sitting in the chair over him. The fact that you can see that he's naked, but you can't see his legs, you can't see his lower half, and then you get that shot of his hooves. It like right. you you fill in the blank mm-hmm. of why he had that horrified look on his face the entire time he's being talked to. Because one, he's trying not to look at his penis, <laughs> obviously. Right. Uh, but I do I did love that line too. What do you mean? Can I see his genitalia? <laughs> yes, yes, I can. <laughs> it's just the the delivery is so confused and angry, and I loved it. Oh, that actor was awesome. It's so good. Uh, can you tell us, can you share any other behind the scenes stories from set? In the scene where the mower uh, crashes through the house, for one thing I should mention that I, again, you know, I, I was in over my head and I wasn't I, really quite ambitious enough. And I just used the mower that we had to cut our little lawn in Queens. The mower in the story is supposed to be this big imposing you know, really, you know, monstrous thing. (laughs) It's not that. It's this little hand push thing, which is ridiculous. But again, you know, you suspend disbelief. Sure. But in the in the scene where it crashes through the house and is coming after Parquet, uh, you know, myself and the cameraman and the assistant cameraman were were in our in, in my house in Queens, we were experimenting. And this was maybe one, two, three in the morning. And you know, we were playing with the lighting and we we put a, a smoke bombs into the into the exhaust thing of the lawnmower to make it look like you know we were really influenced by christine at the time and mm-hmm. you know all of this improvisation and you know the guinea pig also needed the guinea pig that i rented and wound up taking back to the pet store also needed these shavings to to be on in its cage so i bought this bag of shavings and those came in handy when the mower was supposed to be cutting through the chair and the parquet oh, tries to defend himself. Perfect. So we, we threw the shavings as if the mower was cutting through the shavings. <laughs> and it was just, it was just pure improvisation. There were no actors. We were just winging it and it was fun and <laughs> it was hot. It was like 110 degrees, but there was no pressure. And I remember that fondly. You know, everything else where there were always people standing around waiting for you. Not as fun. (laughs) They were, they were, God bless them. They were cooperative. It didn't really take that long. You know, it wasn't that ambitious of a movie, but again, I was just really intimidated at the time. And that's kind of what I remember most. (laughs) That's, I love the, 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 having those moments where you can just like, cause keeping in mind, like you were, you were like 17, like getting the chance to goof off with your friends and still doing this big thing. That's just, that sounds like a blast. Yeah, it was, it was. And uh, they, you know, when, whenever we would see the rushes, we would just get so excited because we, you know, it was, this is our first time shooting in, in 16 millimeter color. And, you know, again, with these actors, and it's just like, wow, this is, this is exciting. This is fun, you know? So there's, there's always that part of it too. And I imagine it was even more fun later when you got the chance to talk to Stephen King about it. Yeah. Uh, the, the stand had been, uh, re-released in the unexpurgated edition, and he did one of his rare book signings at Tower Books in downtown New York. Uh, I had sent him a VHS of the film, uh, but I'd never heard you know any of his response. So I you know stood in line finally, uh, finally met him quickly, asked him because you only have what you know, twenty yeah. seconds, yeah, and they're pushing you along, <laughs> right? He said that uh, he got a kick out of it. Uh, I think he said it made him laugh or something to that effect. I was I was happy to hear it, That's and I awesome. moved on. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> yeah. Talk about like a twenty seconds that you like can just the, hold yeah. forever. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and the whole uh, feature film, you know, him, him suing to have his name taken off of it and the, you know, how, how far things had seemed to have gotten with the liberties that filmmakers had taken with the stuff that, that that feature sort of became the, you know, the poster boy for uh, adaptations that are just too unfaithful to even be called mm-hmm. King, mm-hmm. Uh, the spirit of King. And so in time, my uh, student film, that's really what it is, the student film. I mean, you know, anybody who's actually expecting to see anything creep show level is going to be sorely disappointed. But for a student film, it's benefited incredibly from being a King adaptation, a King adaptation that's not, I don't think, been adapted otherwise. At least I've never seen it by anyone else. And from the notoriety of you know, that unfaithful version (laughs) um, that, okay, there is a faithful version. Someone actually did try to do it. And again, with, with a lot of other dollar babies, especially the the earliest ones, you get written up in books Mm -hmm. and you get, you know, interviews like we're doing now, which is, which is wonderful and very flattering. Most of the student films that had been completed that year out of NYU I would bet I uh, have not gotten this this kind of lingering attention. So uh, I'm seriously grateful for that. And I'm glad that we ended up deciding to to adapt that story when we did. We are also glad that you chose to adapt that story because we love watching it. <laughs> Thank you. So if you could give a piece of advice to any future Dollar Baby filmmaker out there, what piece of advice would you pass on? Uh, well, to you know, I... I know that there's a process that there are films available, titles available on, on the website uh, that, that you can choose from to adapt and to get the permission. Uh, I, that wasn't the case at the time because there was no internet, but find the story that you love. That's the most important thing. And then, and then just go for it. Enjoy the process and finish it and join the community of other Dollar Baby filmmakers and, you know, Stephen King, you know, the whole Stephen King fan community and podcasts. And um, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful community to, to be a part of. I'm, I'm thrilled that, I mean, I can't, I, I know I'm not, nowhere near along the lines of Frank Darabont, but he started out as a Dollar Baby. Mm-hmm. And so it's, hey, what, what wonderful company. Yeah. You know? Not a bad class to be a part of, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, interests you right now like what is what is next for jim gonis i uh am happy to say that i'm part of a podcast called monster party uh, as you said at the top of the show and it's myself and three good friends uh, we've been friends for like 20 years who are all into science fiction fantasy and horror and we are all Mm -hmm. of a certain age and we grew up with the same influences the horror hosts the universal films and we've also had a continued love of you know current uh, shows as well so it it's been terrifically rewarding to to be a part of this uh, we just had our 200th episode uh, we're, oh, we're bi-weekly wow. we've been going for god about uh, 6 or 7 years mm-hmm. uh, we've had some tr- tremendous guests on we did a, a Stephen King dedicated episode and our guest was Constantine Nasser, uh, who's a film historian who contributed to the, uh, the Blu-rays of It and uh, the Frank Darabont films. So perfectly knowledgeable person, the, the ideal guest for the show if we couldn't have Mr. King on. <laughs> yeah, so, right? yeah, it's amazing. That's great. Coming from NYU, where even though I'm no longer in film production, 
at NYU, I was also a cinema studies co-major, and there is something really satisfying about having people listen to your opinions. And even though they, the opinions might be debated, you're still in this forum where you get to kind of exercise what you learned about uh, approaching you know, films and stories in different ways and finding what you like and don't like and being able to criticize them in an informed way. Uh, so I feel blessed that I can at least apply that part of my degree to the podcast mm -hmm. and that, and that it, we are, you know, reaching people and, and hearing back from them. And, you know, as you probably know, that's in, incredibly rewarding. You know, mm -hmm. you're hearing from people from Europe and from Asia and from Australia, all parts of the US, and it's just, it's wonderful. So that's, uh, that's my jam these days, mm -hmm. the Monster Party podcast. That's awesome. So where can our listeners follow you and your career and listen to your show? It's, uh, it's available wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded. Certainly iTunes and Spotify and Google Play and uh, every, pretty much everywhere else. And uh, we also have a uh, Facebook and a YouTube, and uh, that's Monster Party TV, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, we're Monster Party HQ. So we're doing the, the social media rounds as these days we must. <laughs> so yeah, you can uh, you can uh, log on to any of those and I would invite you to check us out. Certainly Stephen King fans might enjoy the Stephen King episode. Oh, yeah, we are absolutely going to go check that out. <laughs> uh, and also big congratulations on 200 episodes. That's that's super awesome celebrating. You guys get to celebrate your 200. Thank you. Well, as you know, it's, it's a labor of love. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much one more time for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. This was such a blast. We loved Lawnmower Man, and yeah, we can't thank you enough for coming by. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Again, it's a blast to be able to talk about something that you worked hard at doing so long ago and that people are still mm. interested in it. So I, I really, really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode for CM Alexander and Jim Gonis. This is Joshua Kahn reminding you, make what you want to see.